The Explore Oregon podcast is brought to you by the Statesman Journal, newspaper of Salem in the state capital since 1851. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. In this edition, we're bringing you a special report about a big change coming to the way Oregonians visit some of the state's most beautiful landscapes. But first, here's some guitar music to get us going. This week, the U.S. Forest Service made an announcement that has huge ramifications for the way Oregonians experience the outdoors. Starting in the summer of 2020, people will need to purchase a special permit before hiking and camping in the Mount Jefferson, Three Sisters, and Mount Washington wilderness areas. Only a limited number of those permits will be available, meaning you might not be able to visit places you've hiked to a million times in the past. The goal here is to limit damage caused by the skyrocketing number of visitors, but it's also going to mean a fundamental shift to the way we visit our wildest places. In this special edition of the Explore Oregon podcast, we're going to dive into exactly what this new system means for Oregon. We're going to spotlight the places that will now require a permit to enter, and we'll explain where the system came from. Later, we'll have an extended interview with the people who shaped this new policy. Okay, David, so let's talk about how we're going to do this. It's going to be a two-part podcast. Haven't done that before? This is a new thing for us. So in part one, we're going to break down this new policy that we're going to call Limited Entry Comes to Oregon. And this is going to be a wide-angle view where we talk about the big changes coming to this very popular backcountry area from kind of 20,000 feet. Then in part two, which we'll post next week, we'll do a more focused look at a special place called Obsidian Trail. It's had this permit-style limited entry for about 20 years now. It's the inspiration for the current system. We're going to go deep to see whether limiting hikers and backpackers actually save this really beautiful place. Yep, two-part podcast. Nobody is ever going to be able to blame us for ignoring this issue. Certainly not. Okay, David, so let's start out with the basics here. So the bureaucratic name for this project that we are going to talk a lot about You ready? It's the Central Cascades Wilderness Strategies Project. Any idea what that means? You know, just right off the bat, I got nothing. It sounds really official, but I got no idea what it means. The word strategies prompts so many headaches. (laughs) That is the the word that throws me off, too. And there's a couple layers to it. There's a lot of layers to it. But I want to start at a really simple place, the location that we're talking about, the location that is being impacted. So the new system applies to three wilderness areas located between Bend and Salem. It's about 450,000 acres, so that's that's a large area, all around Mount Jefferson, Mount Washington, and the Three Sisters. If you've ever traveled over Saniam Pass or Mackenzie Pass, you're driving right past them. That's kind of the best view from a car, but to get to the best stuff, you have to take a hike. Exactly. We're talking thousands of miles of trail, countless mountain lakes, and four of Oregon's tallest mountains, all right in this one place. A lot of people would argue this is the premier backcountry area of Oregon. I mean, just the climb up South Sister, where you can see half the state from this 10,000-foot peak, I mean, that's inspired a generation of mountain climbers. I mean, it's, it's premier. It's up there. Yeah, this is really an area that's very important to residents of the state. One of those places that Oregon likes to throw in a postcard and send out to the world. 
But for people who don't know, let's go ahead and define what a wilderness area is. Yeah, that's an important part of this. I mean, wilderness areas are different than state parks. They're different from national parks. And basically, they're areas that have been set aside by the United States Congress. They have the highest level of environmental protection. So you can't drive a car into a wilderness area. You can't even ride a mountain bike into them. So to quote the 1964 Wilderness Act, they're a place untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. Yeah, and I've always thought wilderness areas make an interesting contrast to national parks. You know, at these parks, there's big parking lots, roads that lead right up to the good stuff, those, you know, scenic vistas where everyone has the same selfie, Mm -hmm. and visitor centers complete with gift shops. It's really catered to sort of the classic road-tripping family. Wilderness areas, on the other hand, are really where you have to make your own adventure. Some outdoor fans kind of look at them like a blank canvas. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And in Oregon, I've always thought this is interesting. We really like that sort of wilder wilderness experience. Oregon has 47 wilderness areas, just one national park. Okay, but let's go ahead and get to the big change. You said this is a new system and it will fundamentally change how we use the outdoors. That's a pretty bold claim. So how so? So on the most basic level, in the past, you were allowed to visit these wilderness areas any time you wanted. So there's 80 different trailheads we're talking about, and at any time you could go park, and on a whim, without permission, go for a hike, go backpacking, ride your horse and put down a tent, whatever. Wilderness areas, again, unlike national parks, are traditionally wide open for recreation. You can travel on a trail or off trail. You can camp more or less wherever you want. They are those blank slates. Yeah, and that's really a big part of the Oregon identity. Whether you're talking about the Oregon coast or the mountains, it's always open. There's no closing time. Even when there are fees, they're pretty limited to like $5 parking fees. You know, again, it's the sky's the limit. And exactly, and that's why this is such a big deal, because it fundamentally alters that balance a little bit. Now, beginning in 2020, a visit to a lot of these places, you're going to need a permit. Okay, so let's get to some details here. Explain a bit more about how the new system works. Right. So in the three wilderness areas, there are about 80 total trailheads where you can enter. But beginning in 2020, each of those trailheads is going to have a quota system. The quota is the number of permits available for overnight, meaning camping use, or day use. So let's look at Devil's Lake Trailhead. That's the really popular trailhead because that's where you start the climb up South Sister, that iconic hike we've talked about. The quota there is going to be 100 individual day use permits or 16 overnight group permits. What that means is that if you want to go climb South Sister, you need to get one of these permits in advance. And if they're all gone, which is going to happen, you don't get to go that day. You're out of luck. And that's what we mean by limited entry. But the trailheads are all pretty different, right? I mean, there's a lot of very remote, tiny trailheads. So they're all going to have different quotas, correct? Exactly. So let's look at Triangulation Peak Trailhead. It's another one of my favorites in the Mount Jefferson wilderness. Much smaller, much more remote. There, there's only 16 individual day use permits and five overnight permits. That's what's going to be available. So each trailhead's going to have a different number. So what about the cost and the process for actually getting one of these permits? They're actually doing that process separately, so we should know the details in a couple months. But I do know that people will primarily purchase them online. 
recreation.gov is where you do everything involving the federal government. And if I had to guess on a price, I'm going to guess somewhere around $10 per permit, give or take. And that's just based on systems that are already in place. All right. That's a good starting point. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we'll have an interview with the U.S. Forest Service staff that crafted this new policy. Did you know that the Statesman Journal's outdoor section has an app? It's true. It's called the Explore Oregon app, and it features detailed information on more than 200 places around the state. It's designed for your iPhone or Android devices, and what's cool about it is that you can turn it on and find information about all the places closest to you. So say you're traveling in Bend. Turn on the app, and immediately you'll find information about great hikes closest to you. Learn more at exploreoregonapp.com or download it from the App Store of your choice today. All right, welcome back. Let's now move on to uh, an interview that we recorded with the Forest Service right after this new system was announced. We headed down to Springfield, the headquarters of the Willamette National Forest, and talked to the main architects of Limited Entry. All right, so we're here at the headquarters of Willamette National Forest this morning with Matt Peterson. He's one of the architects of the new limited entry system that should be going into effect in three of Oregon's wilderness areas beginning in 2020. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Good, good. It's going great. All right, so I wanted to start off with this just to give us a little bit of background. Um, talk about what you guys were seeing around Mount Jefferson and the Three Sisters maybe 2011 into 2016 that made you think, like, there's a problem here. So what were you seeing? So what our rangers were seeing is... Um, more and more and more people, mm-hmm. um, you know, for especially year after year, there kept being, you know, unprecedented numbers of folks showing up. I mean, some of the sites had pretty consistent visitation over the last five or 10 years. And then, you know, hundreds to thousands of more people started showing up. Parking lots started getting full. People started having to park on the roads. Um, the trails were getting crowded with folks. We started seeing more trash, more poop more trade, you know, more user created trails out there. And it just was just, so it felt out of the blue that these incredible numbers of people were all of a sudden coming to these areas that have been on the landscape forever. Um, and it just was unprecedented in really realizing something had to be done. You know, one of the ways I've heard it described from other land managers, 2013, they were like, wow, like this was a watershed year. It can't possibly get any crazier than this. And then like the next year it would. And like every year they would have the same thought process. Is that what you guys were kind of seeing? Absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at some of the graphs of use at some of the, the, the big trailheads, um, it's, it's a hockey stick. It's pretty stable over many, many years and then shoots straight up. Um, you know, starting in 2011, 2012, uh, through 16 and 17. And was it, was it site specific or was it, were you seeing it, it, it spread out over a large area? Cause I mean, a lot of people know Green Lakes has been, right. had, has been kind of the poster child for forever, but it wasn't just Green Lakes, was it? No, I mean, I, well, and it's a, it's a matter of scale. I mean, I think there are the ones that blew up, you know, you know, doubled or tripled or quadrupled in use, but even some of the other ones, you know, increased 50%. And mm-hmm. while that doesn't seem like a lot when you talk about the ones that saw huge use, but if you step back and say, 
an increase in 50% in just a couple of years, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. And so it really was much broader um, than just some of those, you know, the Green Lakes, um, Chan MacArthur Rim, those, I mean, those saw the big use, but Jefferson Park and a lot of the other places saw increases as well, just not to the same magnitude. So did you guys look at what was uh, driving the, the issue, like where all the people are coming from? You know, we've had a lot of conversations about that. We've talked to a lot of folks and, and I don't think there's any one one place where we can, you know, pin the cause to, um, you know, the things that we've talked about is just, you know, general population growth, you know, especially on the east side, but in Oregon itself, but that in and of itself doesn't explain. I mean, mm -hmm. Oregon's population, Ben's population didn't double in size in those five years. Um, but that is part of it. And people do move here for that outdoor recreation experience. Um, social media and the way that has changed um, and encouraged visitation. I think that's a bit, that's a cause as well. People see the cool photo on Instagram and want to go there themselves. Um, tourism, um, I mean, so the outdoor recreation has been a key part of what, uh, what the, the tourism folks have marketed for Bend and for Oregon itself. And so m uh, more folks coming to town visiting, you know, from out of state or even out of the country. And so I think it's a combination of all those. And, I've, and in my mind, it's also something culturally has changed, too. And when, when I was driving down I-5 and I saw a fast food restaurant advertising their coffee <laughs> out on a hike, you know, that to me was that's, you know, they're obviously seeing something that folks want that kind of experience. And so there's, I think, something else culturally going on that people want to get outside and enjoy their public lands, which is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like kind of a, a perfect storm where it's like, you know, Oregon's population is you know growing at its fastest rate in like 20 years right. especially in bend um outdoor recreation has kind of almost become in vogue especially with yep. trail running and yep. and hiking like it's like a fitness wellness thing and right. so it's almost like a it's been interesting to watch like because this is occurring everywhere yeah like yeah. it's not just these wilderness areas it's like national parks state parks correct everywhere is seeing this so what was kind of the long-term concern like if if you wouldn't have done anything and this mm -hmm. would have taken its natural progression because you know the population in Venn doesn't show any sign of right. slowing in the near right. future so I mean was there a long term right I mean I think that was one of the big concerns was we don't we didn't know what it was going to look like in five years you know was this use going to continue skyrocketing or not I mean all signs seem to suggest that it would we were already seeing people displace themselves or start going to new trailheads because places like Green Lakes and Devil's Lake um, were too crowded so they so some of the neighboring trailheads were starting to see big increases in use and so the big the the concern looking forward long term is is that it would keep getting more and more crowded more and more sites would keep getting crowded and then uh, really importantly those those crowds have impacts to the wilderness experience can you touch on that just a little bit just yep. because i think a lot of people don't register the difference between like you know the different land management styles so a wilderness area so like the three sisters and mount jefferson mount washington those are designated wilderness areas congress uh, passed legislation to establish those on the landscape um, it's based on the 1964 wilderness act and it's very specific about stepping back from management and letting nature take its course you know where you know that has language in the legislation where you know where humans are visitors where our presence doesn't remain it's not there for recreation mm -hmm. it is part of what why wilderness is there recreation is identified as a use there but it's not the primary use it's not the only use and it's not we don't manage it just for recreation and so it also really emphasizes um, thinking over the long term preserving that opportunity in the future um, and it, you know, it, make, it asks us to look at the natural conditions out there. It asks us to look um, and provide opportunities for solitude or unconfined recreation. So once you started thinking, you know, 
this is only going to get worse. You know, we're seeing people displaced from already, mm -hmm. you know, slam trailheads. You know, at what point did you kind of decide, boy, you know, we should really consider limited entry on a, on a right. larger scale? Because again, I mean, that's, when you talk to land managers, they're, they're kind of loath to limit right. the amount of people that come to a place. It feels like the nuclear option almost a little bit right, to me, like right. when all else fails, right. this is what we go to. So, I mean, did you guys get to that point or tell me about the process of, of getting to that? I guess I would suggest the nuclear option is prohibiting all use, but, mm, sure. you know, and that's not something that we did, obviously, um, but it is finding that balance. And I think because of our history with trying all these different tools and, and expanding our capacity, trying to get more folks out there, do more education, and still seeing the impacts um, that we were seeing, and because of our experience with the Pamelia and Obsidian Limited Entry Areas and, and how those have been successful in, in preserving those areas, Limited entry was almost, it was, I don't want to say it was the last tool in the toolbox, but it was the last, it was one of the last few tools in the toolbox. So you brought up um, Obsidian Trail. Tell me about what, what that experience is like. So that was definitely before my time. Um, mm -hmm. This was the mid 90s. Um, and but what, from what I've read, um, there were a number of areas in the, the Cascade Crest wildernesses where um, in the 90s, they took on an effort to look at uh, wilderness management and what to do about these areas that were seeing huge levels of use. And the Obsidian area has always been super desirable. You know, my wife's cousin who grew up in town, and she remembers the family going out there and having picnics and, you know, being surrounded by hundreds of people mm -hmm. in Obsidian Meadow. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful spot. You can understand. Um, but the impacts uh, were untenable. And so at the time, they put in a limited entry system. Um, and so since the mid 90s, folks have had to get a permit from the Forest Service to, to go on a day hike there, to backpack um, into there. And it wasn't just from the trailhead, it was an area, lines on a map, if you were gonna travel through that area um, or spend some time in that area, you needed to get a permit to be there. And so it really, it, it brought the use down to a more sustainable level um, and uh, in both of those places. In just about everyone I talk to, even mm -hmm. people who are, are maybe even skeptical of, of this, right. will say it's a much better experience there. So how did having that model mm -hmm. already there and saying this worked, how much did that influence your decision in this case when you wanted to expand it? It wasn't the sole reason why we went to limited entry, but it, it, our experience with it showed that it worked. And so it was we knew it was an effective tool. Even so, that I mean, there's... You know, when you've seen limited entry, I guess, in other mm -hmm. places, it's like for climbing Mount St. Helens, yeah, right. it's for the Enchantment Basin, and mm -hmm. even in Obsidian and Pameleon's uh, case, those are specific places. Right. Um, right. It's not, you don't typically see it on such a wide scale, right? So, I mean, did it, did you guys know that this was sort of a newish thing, or? Well, I think... Yeah, I mean, it's definitely new for the area, especially. Sierra Nevada Mountains in California, I mean, that's a pretty broad scale permit system that's mm -hmm. at a, a large geographic scale. The Boundary Waters are another one. And so there are examples out there that are at this kind of scale. Um, whole national parks are, are, are other examples of where it's a, a much broader area. And we do recognize that there aren't very many in Oregon, Washington, Pacific Northwest. And yeah. so it is new um, and will be new to a lot of folks to have it at, at this level. Um, but it's also what we felt like we needed to do for these areas to protect them mm -hmm. because of the use that we've seen. Okay. So once, once you guys went public with this, you know, as a process, mm -hmm. you did public meetings. Yep. What, what did you hear? You know, because you, you, you did shape, you know, you had an original 
you know, idea, you had alternatives. Yep. Um, what did you hear that led you to shift to the what came out uh, this week? You know, in short, we heard everything. Yeah. Um, we heard from folks who said, yes, you know, this really needs to happen. You know, you should have done this a long time ago. It's really important um, to the other end of people saying, no, you know, never. this is public lands. We should be able to do this, do whatever we want. Um, and then everything in between. You know, we've heard a lot from the public about the, you know, the uh, wanting to be able to get permits spontaneously or, or before a trip. And so that's how, that's been a key part of uh, uh, our thinking going forward too, making sure that folks have that spontaneity or the ability to, to, to make short term, uh, to, to take a trip tomorrow rather than having to plan a month or two in advance. So this plan, it, it requires anybody that wants to camp in those three wilderness areas yep. uh, to get a permit. Uh, requires it for 30 of kind of the more popular trailheads. Um, for, what, day, for day use. For, for day use, yeah. Yep. Um, what made you say, you know, that's the right fit, that's that's the right balance? You know, I think we looked at a lot of different things and, and uh, you know, one of the big things we really try to keep in mind as we went forward was trying to strike the balance of our obligation and our responsibility to protect these areas for the future. Um, protect the, the experience now, but and especially into the future, and balancing that without with not overly restricting and overly limiting people. And so we did go back and forth. Um, we felt that even in areas that are currently low use, one of our concerns was that if we don't have permits in place there, that people will start going to these places that are, are uh, currently not very popular or there's not very many people go there. Mm -hmm. And what's hard is, is an area that's currently relatively pristine, uh, you know, really provides that opportunity for solitude, um, not many impacts, is it doesn't take much to really impact that area. Mm -hmm. And so if we see a big increase in use in one of these areas, it's much harder to recover. And okay. so part of it was to also protect those experiences as well. Um, and to keep, you know, our, our part of the wilderness mandate is, is we're not supposed to sacrifice areas um, and to, uh, to allow them to absorb new use. And so going wilderness wide provide, gave us the opportunity and the ability to provide the spectrum of opportunities. Because when people go to Devil's Lake Trailhead, they're still gonna see a lot of people. They won't see as many as they saw in the past, mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of people. And we're also preserving the opportunity for folks who don't want to see a lot of people. Because I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's one of the things that's going to come to your door a mm -hmm. lot. It's something I've already heard. It's, you know, there's an obscure trail in the Mount Washington wilderness. Um, right. And it has a quota system. Like yep. it's a place maybe I haven't even heard of. And yep. that, that, that seems like overreach to some people. But mm -hmm. you're saying you yeah. want to maintain what it is now without sacrificing that, I guess. So that was one of the, the motivations for it. And, you know, and even, you know, saving it how it is now, I mean, even the quotas we put in place would still allow more people to go there than are currently going there. Even if the, if the quota looks pretty small, like three, uh, three groups, you know, that's still a doubling or tripling of, of average use mm -hmm. um, if, if, it, if that got full. Um, so that was one component. I mean, and honestly, one of the others is um, that we had to start thinking about is 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 how easy is this system going to be for the public to understand, mm -hmm. um, and that is a, a, another place where working with Obsidian and Pamelia over the years has has gave us some insight on that. If we do it wilderness wide, it's, the public will hopefully know that they just need to get a permit regardless of where they go. Whereas if it's um, you know some trailheads here, some trailheads there, it becomes a little more complicated. So philosophically, um, just 
jumping back to kind of yep. wide angle again. You know, wilderness is always, I've always liked it because, you know, you drive down some crappy road, you know, where nobody yeah. is, and you could, you, there's a freedom there. Like, yep. you can, you can camp more or less wherever you want. I mean, is there any concern about this, you know, for whatever reason, but, yeah. you know, kind of limiting that, that freedom that is kind of inherent in the wilderness act? Yeah, absolutely. No, we gave a lot of thought to that. I mean, that's a really important part of the wilderness experience is the ability to, to travel and, and, and go where you want, essentially. And so, like a lot of things with wilderness management, there's trade-offs. Yeah. And, and really, a lot of this, you know, was, was balancing and taking a look at the trade-offs. And can we allow that unencumbered, unfettered access um, and still overall manage wilderness and wilderness character and preserve and enhance it. And in a lot of these cases, what we saw was we recognize we are confining recreation by putting a permit into place. And so that is, you know, one of the things in Wilderness Act is unconfined recreation, and we are going against that. But wilderness character is more than that. It's also preserving the natural uh, conditions out there. Um, it is also looking at those opportunities for, uh, for solitude. Um, and so it's looking at how do these, these different elements of wilderness character interact and overall what's going to benefit wilderness character. So numbers wise, while this will limit your ability to maybe climb South Sister on mm -hmm. a summer weekend, overall right. it allows for recreation growth? Even though the limits um, might shave off the peaks of use at a lot of these popular trailheads or some of the weekends, if folks um, have flexibility in where they want to go or when they want to go, um, there's still going to be a lot of opportunity um, almost all the you know almost every weekend and almost uh, across the summer. Because that's even true at Obsidian and Pamelia. It wasn't that particularly difficult to get a permit there, mm -hmm. and so I mean. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, right. how hard do you think it will be for people to get a permit for the places they want to go? You know, I, I guess the way I've been saying is that people will be able to go into the Three Sisters Wilderness. They just may not be able to, you know, their first choice for location and time. Mm -hmm. You know, if again, that's where some flexibility comes in. If they have a little bit of flexibility, they'll be able to go hike or they'll be able to go backpack in the Three Sisters. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, places like South Sister, those might be harder to get. So this is going to be um, a big change, I think, mm -hmm. to how people use wilderness areas. You have people who've been going to Marion Lakes, you know, since the early 1900s or something yep. like that. Yep. Um, yeah. You know, how, well, how do you view the process of like getting this into play? Because you've got you've got next summer, yep. um, and then you know this starts rolling out. So what's what's the plan for letting people know about this sort of fundamental shift in the way they? And uh, when a final decision's made. Um, we'll immediately start uh, working on a, a plan to educate and inform visitors. And so we, that gives us, um, hopefully will give us more than a year lead time um, to try to get the word out as much as we can. Um, and so we're, we know that that's going to take, that's going to be a heavy lift and take a lot of energy and a lot of time and is critically important to a success is that we do the best we can to get the word out so people know to be prepared. So one of the things I want to talk about, and I know that, you know, the cost of the permits and yeah. uh, some of the other stuff is, is coming later. Yeah. But one of the things I noticed, you know, I was up at Obsidian a number of times this year is you still had plenty of people that's been in yeah. place for 20 years yeah. and you still had a lot of people show up and have no idea they needed a permit. Um, and yep. then you can't just buy one there. There's not a kiosk, like there's no cell phone service. Right. So how do you, how do you, how, how do you address that? Because, you know, there's, you know, people get frustrated. They've driven all the way out there. Right. 
they didn't know about it, and now they're like, well, what do we do now? Right, right. You know, I mean, it's, it is the reality of a permit system. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we can put as much energy as we can into it, and we know that there will be people that this will catch by surprise. Um, you know, I think that's, we hope to have uh, trailhead hosts that can make sure folks know what they're doing when they get there. Um, you know, there are some trailheads that have cell reception, but like you said, a lot don't. And, and it is going to have an impact. I mean, we, I, we can't sugarcoat that, that it will affect people and folks may have to turn around. So one of the, I, I talked to uh, your old friend Troy Hall, and uh, mm -hmm. she, she talks to a lot of recreation managers yeah. nationwide. And she said a lot of people are, are looking at this and kind of curious about what happens next. Do you guys have a good sense of how this is, this is going to go? I mean, are you sort of curious? Because like, it's almost a little bit of a, a sociological experiment yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we looked at all the academic research, you know, we looked at our experience, you know, with Obsidian Pamelia and folks who've worked at other locations and talked to other permit systems. And even with all that, we know that there's uncertainty and that we can't predict everything mm -hmm. in terms of how people are going to react, where they're going to go. Um, and so there is, uh, like I said, there is definitely a level of uncertainty and um, it will be interesting to see. Um, how well it's embraced and how easily, you know, we know it's going to be, like I said, a, a learning curve. You know, I think Obsidian and Pamelia, they weren't, you know, universally adopted and loved immediately, but now 90% of folks know it's there and love it and appreciate that. And so it's, some of it's going to take time. You know, I think that the overarching thing is, we, is we've done our best to strike the balance between, you know, preserving wilderness character, preserving these recreation opportunities for now into the future with trying to not be uh, overly restrictive. It's a tricky balancing act and we know we're, um, we're doing our best to try to, to make these uh, beautiful areas, you know, now but also into the future. All right. Well, thanks for taking some time, Matt. Yeah. No, I appreciate the opportunity. All right, Zach, so what do you think? As someone who travels to a lot of these wilderness areas, how do you see this working? I think it's going to be really difficult to start off. I think it's going to have kind of a rocky rollout because, look, you're talking about places people have been going their entire lives, and all of a sudden, you're going to make them get a permit. Change in behavior like that is just going to take a long time. There's going to be a lot of people that show up to trailheads, totally clueless, pretty frustrated about having to get a permit every time. At the same time, I've talked to a lot of people about this, just out on the trail, people, you know, within the recreation industry, and there's a general feeling that something had to happen here. It really had become a madhouse at a lot of places. I'd been there at the peak, and I can't underestimate. It's like visiting the Mall of America out in the wilderness. It's ridiculous. Something had to happen. It's just, you know, time will tell whether this is the right solution. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a big amount of behavior modification that is going to have to take place. Yeah. And we really talk a lot about a lot of these places in Oregon being loved to death with an explosion of use. If it works here, couldn't you see it spreading to other places that are overcrowded now, like, you know, anywhere in the gorge or Smith Rock State Park? I think it's possible. I think it's definitely possible. I mean, I, I, I doubt it gets adopted on such a wide scale, like all of the gorge going to permit entry all of a sudden. <laughs> That's probably a bridge too far, but I think it could become a more common tool if it's shown to work. California uses it quite a lot. And look, this isn't crazy. It just, it reminds me a lot of fishing and hunting. Nobody thinks twice there when you have to purchase a license and tags and submit to bag limits to protect the resource. 
I mean, this is really just protecting the resource. It's just applied to hiking. And, you know, it could mark a turning point in Oregon. If the state keeps growing and all indications are at will, I think we could see more regulations in our great outdoors. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have today. Remember that this is part one of this special report. In part two, we're going to take a deep dive into the Obsidian Trail. We talked a little bit about it today, but it's really the best place to get a sense of of how this new system will work. Yeah, I mean, this is a place that's had the system in place for 20 years. It's like a great case study on the, the upsides and the downsides of this new system. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe. Hit us up at statesmanjournal.com slash explore.